passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. The last words that people say before they die are important to hear. Some of you know that it's been a little bit over six years since my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And she passed away back then. When we first heard that she was diagnosed with aggressive cancer, uh, Cindy, myself, and the kids, we drove out to the East Coast to be with her. And she wasn't that strong, and she was pretty weak. We had the three kids were pretty squirrely, as you can imagine, being in Grandma and Grandpa's home. And after being there for a few weeks, it sort of became obvious that maybe it's time for us to, to leave and head back to Iowa, give Mom and Dad a little bit of a, a break. And we didn't know how long Mom would last. She could go for a while. So we packed the car early in the morning and got everything ready to go. Then everybody came into Mom's bedroom, and we tiptoed in. Things were sort of relatively dark, and she was under the covers, and we prayed with her, and we encouraged her, and we loved on her. Then we went to walk out, and all of a sudden my mom said, I'd like to speak to the children. Okay, so Deanna and her two brothers walked up to mom's bedside, and there was a sudden transformation. She was sick, and she was thin, and she was weak, and she was under the covers. But all of a sudden, her eyes became big as saucers. Her bony finger came out, and she looked them straight in the eyes, and she said, Keep your pants on. Keep your pants on. And I was like, What? And so I said, Mom, I mean, I know they're squirrely and they're fighting with each other. In the back seat of the car on the trip back, we've never had a problem with them taking their pants off before. And then I realized I completely missed what was going on. My mom had realized this was probably the last time she'd see her grandchildren alive. So she decided it was the time to give them the purity talk. And she boiled it down to four words. Keep your pants on. Now, about three days after that, when we arrived back in Iowa, her health did decline rapidly. And that was the last time she saw her grandchildren. But her final words were definitely memorable words. And in our house, we still have the kids needling each other going, hey, by the way, keep your pants on. Well, those are my mom's final words, and they were memorable. Today we start the book of 2 Timothy. This book is literally Paul's final words. It's his final letter. At this time, he was incarcerated in jail. It wouldn't be long, too long till he would be executed. So he wrote this final letter to someone he loved dearly, just like my mom loved her grandchildren dearly. Paul loved this man named Timothy, and he wrote him this letter to encourage him for what to do when he was gone. Essentially, this letter is saying, hey, here is what's really important for me. It's what I want you to remember. It's what I want you to know. This morning, I was going to try and accomplish two purposes, and hopefully we'll get at least partway done with them. First is I want to give you the background of this letter, because when you know the background, it really will help under, us understand everything else when we go through it. 
Secondly, I'd like to go through a, a few verses at the beginning of the letter, which sort of sets the stage for what is to follow. So let's go ahead and dive in. And by the way, if you're new, one of the things we do at Crosswinds is I always give you guys an outline, and we fill in the outline as we go. So grab your outline, take it out, and we give you the first point, and we'll dive right in. What is the background of 2 Timothy? First point, Paul wrote this letter from what's called the Mamertine Prison. The Mamertine Prison still exists today. It actually has two chambers in it. Uh, they're on top of one another, and it's a prison that is deep underground. Go ahead and show the, the photo of that. This is what the, uh, the, photo, excuse me, the prison looks like today. You can see it says right there the Mamertium on the bottom of the, the main, right over the main doors on the bottom level. Um, the reason it says that is because there's been two churches throughout history that have been built one on top of the other on top of this prison. Um, the prison itself is deep underground. Maybe a better term for it, it's not a prison, but actually a dungeon. Paul was kept in the deepest of these two cells that was only accessible by one hole. The hole's about the size of a manhole. Go ahead and put that up. That's what it looks like. That's what Paul was dropped down through to end up in this dungeon room. Let me go ahead and show you what the room looks like. This is a shot from the bottom. It's about 30 feet wide. It's stone. And the only light you get is from that hole in the top. Now, here's what I want you to remember. There are no sanitary facilities in this small underground room. It typically contained somewhere between 30 to 40 men in it. It was filled with filth and excrement. It was not intended to be a long-term place. People were, put, people were put there for days, weeks, sometime months, while they were awaiting their final execution. Many people died of sickness while there, or they died of starvation while in there. There is one steel door on, on the wall of this most deep dungeon room where Paul was that was occasionally uh, lifted up by those who ran the prison. And what they did is they, from there, had direct access into the Roman sewage system from which they would shovel all of the filth, excrement, and throw the dead bodies out the door. So it would go down with the sewage. Now, if you think that I am overstating the hideousness, the stench, and the filth of this room. Let me just quote from you from an ancient writer who described it this way. He said, This room is vile and a disgusting place because of the filth, the stench, and the absolute darkness. Paul was there, I'm just going to tell you, for months before he died. He didn't die there. Uh, church tradition, this is not something that we I would say is in Scripture. Obviously, it's not. Tradition is that he was taken out of there by Nero and had his head chopped off on a chopping block. But this, to me, is heartbreaking. Paul went through so much suffering for the gospel, didn't he? Remember what 2 Corinthians said about some of the things he went through? Paul says, I've gone through beatings without number. 
Five times I've been given 39 lashes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. One time I've been stoned and left for dead. Three times I've been shipwrecked. I mean, Paul went through a ton for the, through the gospel. And here he is at the end of his life. By the way, he's about 65 years old at this point. And they stick him into this hole of filth and excrement where he stayed for months, some scholars believe up to almost a year before they killed him. The Bible reminds us, by the way, that uh, even though this is hard, this is terrible, this is not abnormal for what Christians experience. That as Christians, we should expect that we will end up suffering for our faith being persecuted for our faith. In fact, in America, here at this time in history, we've been relatively blessed to be able to worship freely, to be able to speak the gospel freely. That's not a normal thing. That's an abnormal thing in the big picture of world history. Scriptures say this in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Incidentally, this is not Paul's first time in prison. If you've read the book of Acts, you know he went in prison in the city of Philippi. If you've been with us this summer when we studied the book of Philippians, you know that he actually was in Roman prison before this, about five to six years before this time. But that was a cakewalk compared to what he was going through here. The first time Rome, Paul was in prison, he was under what's called house arrest. He was allowed to stay in his own rented quarters. Remember we learned this summer that he was chained to a Roman guard, but his friends could come, come and go freely as they pleased. The Roman guard that Paul was chained to at that, that time was called the Imperial Guard. It was Caesar's own private bodyguard. And Paul thought it was great. <laughs> you have to listen to me tell you about Jesus all day long and you can't go anywhere. And as we studied in Philippians and learned that a number of those Roman soldiers became Christians, went back to Caesar's household, shared the gospel, and Caesar's own household was having a born-again experience. People were coming to Christ. So God was doing all kinds of good things. Incidentally, we know that during that first imprisonment, Paul wrote a number of letters that are in our Bible. Remember, he wrote Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians. He even wrote a letter called Philemon during that time. But after that imprisonment, which Paul expected to be released from, he was. What we know is that he uh, set out on a fourth missionary journey. Acts only tells us of three, but there was a separate subsequent one after Acts that he set on where he visited Timothy in Ephesus. He also visited Macedonia, Crete, Miletus, and possibly went as far as Spain to share the gospel. Now, the question becomes, if everything was going so well, what turned the tables? How did Paul end up going from a mild imprisonment that he was freed from to this terrible imprisonment where he would be killed? The answer is not anything Paul did. The answer is a change in world circumstances. It's called Nero. Nero's persecution of the church is what landed Paul in prison. The year was 64 AD. 
and the city of Rome began to burn. Some people think that Nero was the one who actually set it on fire. And if he didn't set it on fire, one thing we know for sure is he didn't do anything to stop the fire. He let the old portion of the city burn. Why did he do this? Probably because he wanted to rebuild it to be the way he liked it. But when you have mobs of people losing their homes and losing their businesses and losing their lives, people tend to get really angry, especially at the politicians in charge who are supposed to do anything, do something. Now, Nero was obviously a, a very good corrupt politician. So what do corrupt politicians do when they've done something wrong? It's his fault. They blame somebody else. And that's exactly what Nero did. He said it was the Christians. They set fire to Rome. Be angry at them. And that unleashed an avalanche of persecution against the church, which began in the city of Rome, and then it radiated throughout the Roman Empire, eventually catching up to Paul, most likely in the city of Nicopolis. At that point, he was arrested. He was taken to Rome. He was um, on trial. He was found guilty and thrown in this Mamertine prison, this filthy excrement hole, while he awaited what would be his final sentence of death. A couple other things to know. Um, Paul's life in prison was very difficult. Obviously, you'd know that, but a couple other things about it that are important to know. Chapter 1, verse 16 tells us that he was in chains while in the prison. Whether those chains were just on his wrists and his feet, we don't know. Uh, some people think he was actually chained to the wall in this prison. We also know he was with other criminals at this time. Chapter 4, verse 11 tells us he was really abandoned by all of his friends. The only person that was still with him was Luke. In fact, when Paul wrote this letter that's now 2 Timothy in our Bible, he most likely did not write it with his hands because he was down in that hole with chains on his wrists, most likely chained to the wall. He called out this letter to Luke, who was above the hole, and wrote it down. Paul was completely alone Chapter 1, verse 15 also tells us that all the believers in Asia had turned away from him. Think of the situation. Paul has literally sacrificed his life to plant churches. He's been tortured time and again to tell people the, the gospel. Churches have planted. Churches have grown. And here he is in his most desperate moment, and nobody wants to be associated with him because nobody wants to be persecuted just like him. So outside of Luke, he's all alone, and everyone is avoiding him. Now, Paul writes this letter to a man named Timothy. Let me tell you about him a little bit. Timothy's life was also difficult. This letter was written in 67 AD, and Paul's big challenge in this letter is for Timothy to be faithful to the end. Timothy, you have a really difficult job. Persevere. What was Timothy's job? He was pastoring the church in Ephesus. And we're going to learn more about that in a, in a little bit. But that was a tough church to lead. Paul was 65 years old 
when he was writing this from this pit. Timothy was approximately 38 years old when he was pastoring in Ephesus, when he received this letter. Paul and Timothy had a very close relationship. Timothy had been Paul's assistant for approximately 15 years. They traveled together. Could you imagine how close those two became after 15 years being together? When Timothy first began traveling with Paul, he was age 18. As Paul's assistant, it fit a need in both of their lives. Paul found Timothy to be the son that he never had. Timothy found Paul to be the godly father he never had. So they had a close and deep bond with one another. I mentioned to you that Timothy was pastoring the church of Ephesus. Let me tell you a bit about that. Go ahead and put the, the map up. This is where Ephesus is located. Uh, that may not mean much to you, but let me show you the significance of the geography. We can see Italy on the left-hand side. That is where Rome is. The ships from Italy would always go to the east, and they dock in Ephesus. Probably about 85, 90% of all commerce with Asia Minor coming from the coming from the east, going this way or going that way, passed through the port city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, second only to Rome itself. It was a huge city, but it was also a large church. Paul had spent three years there planting the church. It was a mega church but it was also a problem-filled church. People who were false teachers, people with strong personalities had infiltrated the church and were leading it astray. And here is young Timothy in his first pastorate trying to steer this church in the right direction when everyone's like, you're too young, you don't know what you're talking about. Listen to me. And they're heading in the wrong way. In fact, after Paul's first imprisonment, before Paul's second imprisonment, that's when Paul wrote the letter in our Bible called 1 Timothy. It was written to Timothy to tell Timothy how to bring order to the troubled church in Ephesus that he was leading. Other thing to know, Timothy, by the way, did not look like a leader in any, in any way. Couple things you need to know about him. First Timothy chapter four, verse two, he says this. Paul says to him, Don't look anyone don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Remember that verse? But set an example for the believers in speech and life. People looked at Timothy like he was just too much of a greenhorn. That was a challenge that he faced. First Timothy chapter five, verse twenty-three. Paul wrote to Timothy then, don't drink only water, but drink a little wine for your stomach. Timothy was a guy who was often sick, had a lot of what you call Imodium AD moments, probably a real skinny guy, not an impressive guy, a guy that's always going, excuse me, I gotta go. Yeah, exactly. Not the kind of leader that you want to have for a massive megachurch that's in, you need an impressive upfront person. Also, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that Timothy was an introvert. 
an introvert that didn't like controversy. But when you find yourself pastoring a megachurch that's filled with a bunch of heretics, what do you have to be? An extrovert who's willing to face controversy. So Timothy looks like he's absolutely the wrong fit for this church. In reality, that's where God has called him to be. One other thing I'll mention before we get into the second half of the message is this. Paul cared about passing on the gospel more than he cared about himself. When I was studying this and I learned the background and what it was like to have been in this pit and to have written this letter by dictating it through this hole so Luke could write it down. I was like, man, if I was there, I'd be talking about how filthy this place is, how bad this is, how I'm being unfairly treated by the Romans, how I'm being unfairly treated by Nero. But in this letter, Timothy never talks about himself. Paul never talks about himself. All he focuses on is what's really important to him, which is Timothy and making sure the gospel gets to the next generation. My friends, that's the sign of a really good leader. A good leader doesn't care about himself primarily. He cares about the mission and about the gospel and getting it to other people. So that's what he talks about. Well, that's the background that you need to know in this book. Let's cover just the opening verses of this book. Um, let's go ahead and get your Bibles out. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. While you're turning, stand out of reverence for the Word of God. I'm going to jump right in and read these opening seven verses, and then we'll get into teaching on them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. You can be seated. In the rest of this book, Paul is going to sort of coach Timothy. He's going to mentor Timothy on how to be faithful to the end. But in these opening verses, what Paul is doing is seeking to actually motivate Timothy. So the mentoring comes later. The motivation, sort of the cheer him up, cheer him on, comes here at the beginning. This is actually going to be very good for us because these verses are going to teach us when we seek to coach somebody in Christ, whenever we seek to mentor somebody in Christ, how can we just not coach them and mentor them, but how can we actually motivate them? 
motivate them to be faithful to Christ all the way to the end. That's what we're going to learn. So, how do I motivate those I mentor? Number one, I motivate someone when I can speak to them from a position of authority. That's how Paul begins the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Some of you know that I love the sport of wrestling. I'm a wrestling-aholic. I wrestled in high school. I wrestled in college. My boys wrestled. It's a great sport. What was really fun is when I could take my boys to wrestling camps in the summer. And you'd come to these camps, and you knew a few of the coaches, but there's always other men that are in the room, and you're hanging out, and you're talking to them, just chatting about the weather and about diesel trucks and all that kind of stuff that men like to talk about. And then eventually they start the camp, and they get everybody around, and they start to introduce all the coaches. And all of a sudden you realize that the guy you were talking to is not just an average ordinary guy, but he's like an NCAA champion. And another guy you were talking to, he's an Olympic champion. And you're like, I got to listen to these guys. They're not ordinary guys. They speak with great authority when it comes to wrestling. And you walk back over to them and say, I'm sorry we talked about the weather, but can you sign my shirt? Isn't that what Paul's doing here in the very beginning? Is he seeking to motivate Timothy? Timothy, I am Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. How many apostles were there originally? Like a dozen? They were hand-chosen by Jesus, invested in by Jesus, and then commissioned by Jesus to take the gospel to the world. These are the guys that you want to sign your t-shirt. Paul was also an apostle, though not an ordinary apostle, as we know that he didn't become an apostle the ordinary way. Acts chapter 9, he was on the Damascus road, on the road to Damascus, rather, and Jesus knocked him down on his backside, flipped him around, changed his direction in life, and then commissioned him to bring the gospel to the world. So Paul was an apostle, but just a little different kind of one. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But the point is, he is still an apostle. The words that he is writing to Timothy come with great authority. He's not just anybody. He's one of the apostles. How encouraging would it be to know that the person who wrote you the personal letter who encouraged you on, in your tough job was a famous person. Not just any person, but an apostle himself. See how he's starting to motivate Timothy? Next thing we see is this. I motivate someone by letting them know my love for them. Because as soon as he starts by talking about his authority, he moves to his love. To Timothy, my beloved child. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy, I may have authority over you, but I completely and totally love you. I love you like my own son. You see, authority and love, they have to work in balance. Children, they have to recognize the authority of their parents. 
They have to listen to their parents. But parents, they don't just express authority over their children or it backfires, right? You have to express love for your children to earn the right to be heard in some sense. So this idea of authority and love go together. Now, let's just apply this. Say that you are uh, teaching CW kids on Sunday morning. You're teaching little children. Well, you have authority over those children to tell them what to do. They need to know that. But if you're going to motivate them, you also couple with that authority love for those children. If they know you love them, they are motivated to listen to you and follow you. See, these two have to go together. Say you're a life group leader. You have a, a group of adults that you meet with and you study the Bible with in life group. You don't just have authority in that group, but you have to fill it with love in that group. If that group knows that you love them, they will listen to you and be motivated by you. Let's continue and look at the next point. I motivate someone by letting them know I pray for them. Paul continues and says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Timothy, I don't just have authority over you. I, I love you, but you know I am also praying for you. Night and day I am praying for you. Now, if I was Paul and I was in that hole of filth, I'd be praying for me. Like, give me COVID, take away my smell. But that's not what he's praying for. I'm praying for you, Timothy, because I love you. How encouraging would it be if you're Timothy and you get this letter? The Apostle Paul is constantly praying for me? Man, I am motivated to stay faithful. By the way, I, I try and do this, guys, and this is the way we can apply this. You know, if you're praying for somebody, maybe text them. Text them and let them know that, you know, I prayed for you this morning. I'm praying for you as you're going through a difficult time. Just those little touches. So people know that you are praying for them. It helps them know that you care about them. And it helps motivate them to be faithful to Christ. By the way, that prayer is important. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Prayer always makes a difference. It may not mean that the Lord's going to bring things the way you ask them to turn out. Maybe God has a different plan. We all know that. But prayer does make a difference. Now, say that you are in the youth group. Say you're working with kids. You're a leader over them. Well, you have authority over them, but they also need to know that you love them. Won't that help motivate them to follow Jesus? But what if you also said, by the way, I don't just love you, but I want you to know that I pray for you every week. Wouldn't that touch their heart? Wouldn't that motivate their life to know that the one in authority over them loves them and prays for them? That's how we can, what we can learn from this. Next point we learn is this. I motivate someone by letting them know they bring me joy. Paul says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. 
Timothy, we spent 15 years together. You know, I am in a really tough situation, but what's going to fill me with joy is seeing your face through that hole in the top. That would make my day. The one thing that would bring me happiness. And I like the way he says this, I long to see you. The, the Greek word long here is sort of the idea of homesickness. Remember that feeling where you just really long to be with those people you love? You're homesick? Paul is homesick to see Timothy. I think I understand a little bit more about Paul's feelings as I have gotten older. Many of you know that we have uh, three children, to the boys. The boys are out of the house. But thankfully, we have this thing coming up called holidays. Because when you have a holiday, the kids usually come home. And now Cindy gets real excited. I get real excited because it feels good when like all the, the, all the little chickens are back at the nest, if you know what I mean. Everybody's home. It's just a real joy in our life to see those we love face to face. And that's what Paul's saying. To see you, that would totally make my day. It would bring me complete joy. When Paul hears that, or Timothy, excuse me, I got my Timothy and my Paul's backwards today. When Timothy hears that, wouldn't that be motivating? To know that Paul values him so much and loves him so much that him seeing Paul would just fill his heart with joy. Apply that to um, apply that to our lives. Say you're um, you're a, let's say uh, uh, working with kids. You're working with Crosswinds kids. You know how sometimes you're teaching those kids, and it's like, well, I, I love them. Yes, I know I love them, and I pray for them. But do they know? that you really like being with them? That you really are filled with joy when you get a chance to teach them and be around them? If they know that, you, that being with them brings them joy, doesn't that motivate their heart? Motivate their life to follow hard after Christ? I'll cover one more, and then we'll get back to the rest of the service here. Last one is this. I motivate someone by reminding them of their heritage. Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. Paul is encouraging Timothy. He says, you know, you came from a great home. First, your grandmother Lois, and then your mother Eunice came to Christ. How did they come to Christ? Most likely on Paul's first missionary journey. By the time you get to Acts chapter 16, on the second missionary journey, we find that Timothy has come to Christ, and he's been raised in Christ by a good mother and by a good grandmother who took the leadership of trying to make sure that her son and her grandson knew Jesus. This probably meant that Eunice brought Timothy to Awana. Eunice brought Timothy to youth group. Eunice prayed with her son before bed, read the Bible to her son at night. Eunice talked Jesus in the car with her son. 
Now the next question becomes, well, what about dad? Where was Timothy's dad? We don't know. We know his father was a Greek, but it sounds like Eunice was possibly what we call a single mother who raised her son on her own. But here is what I want to give as a great encouragement to those single moms out there. Her son, Timothy, that she poured her heart into, poured her life into, and raised for Jesus, do you realize what he became? He became the pastor of the large church in Ephesus, one of the premier leaders in the generation after the apostles in the church. Single mom, job well done. Well done. Timothy, Paul says, you've got a tough church, but you know what? You had a great mom who raised you well. My simple point is this. Never underestimate the power of a family to shape the spiritual lives of children. Parents, you will leave your legacy through your kids. You may not see it now, but you will see it later. Billy Graham has some great words on this. He says this about his mother. Of all the people I've ever known, she had the greatest influence on me. She and my father didn't have much education, but my mother was a woman of God. And he goes on to say that she is the one that he credits with giving him the greatest education and launching him out to become the man that he became. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the background we learned in 2 Timothy. But I also thank you for how we begin to see Paul motivating Timothy by loving him, by praying for him, by telling him, Timothy, I'm proud of you. I don't just love you, but I get great joy when I'm with you. And then by encouraging Timothy, by reminding him of the great family he came from, the great heritage that was poured into him, that would enable him to be a great man of God who would be faithful all the way to the end. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us to learn how to motivate others in Christ by building them up with love, prayer, and joy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.